you appreciate what the young people just did. Why don't you clap your hands one more time? We're praying now, Father, in the name of Jesus, we do ask that you would continue to dwell with us during this portion of the program. We have seen your face, we have heard your voice, and we have felt your presence in this place. We've come this day to celebrate Rama's 90 years of service, but we've also come to celebrate you, a God who has been faithful. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus. And we do pray that as he's lifted high, he will draw souls to him. In Jesus' name, amen. The text of scripture today is the book of John, and we will look in the 13th chapter. What a privilege and opportunity it is to be in the house of God today. Very special day. Very special day. Celebrating 90 years for any institution is exceptional. Most institutions don't make it 10 years, but 90 years with such high production. And the fruit, the fruit of what's taking place at Rama is seen in those persons who have come through Rama, who have stood up here today and have made presentations of various kinds. Kevin Cameron, the principal, is one of the most creative people I know, a fire plug. He's full of energy, and it's holy energy. And I think it would be a nice thing, since we know he doesn't make a great salary, to give him a great word of appreciation right now. Why don't we clap our hands for the principal of Rayma Junior Academy. Mr. Principal, my, my son, my oldest son actually went to Rayma. Went to Rayma for a year, I believe it was, and had a great time, made great friends, and learned a lot about the Lord during his year there. And then the pastor of this church I have great respect for. Do you love your pastor? You should. You should. He's considered to be one of the best preachers in America. Forget in Adventism. In America, a, an individual who knows how to deliver the word. Contemporary, true. Some people try to be contemporary and they leave the truths of God's word behind. But he brings those truths into this context with great power. The gift to communicate the way he does is not just a result of gifting, natural gifting genes, but it's also the touch of God's spirit in his life. And I thank God for the difference he's making all over this world. And I consider you to be one of my pastors. God bless you and the entire first family. You appreciate your pastor. Why don't you show some appreciation right now? It's absolutely appropriate. Praise God. Praise God. And if you ever get tired of him, he's in high demand all over this country. And I think any and everybody will reach and grab him and receive him with gladness. But God has placed him here for this particular time, and I, I trust that you're following his leadership. I've had an opportunity to see the program, uh, the building program, and I want you to know I'm so excited about that thing. It's some building programs I struggle to get excited about. Another church that seats 100 with a little bitty lobby and one bathroom stuck in the back somewhere, I struggle to get excited about those churches. Uh, small churches are needed, we know that, but we've got plenty of those. 
I like what I see with the plans of the church, the development of that particular piece of property, and it's being the plans are being laid properly, and the plans are being laid well, and all that's needed is the support of God's people. And I've seen, I've seen that when God's people do their very best, God makes up the difference. He blesses our best. But I know the book of Malachi says when we bring him cockeyed uh, lambs and lame calves, our leftovers, and expect he's going to bless it. God said, why should I bless that? You bring better to your earthly governors. I'm a great king, and I've always provided your needs. Bring me your best. I trust you are supporting the building program because I am desperately wanting to come on the grand opening. I don't want to preach. I don't want to do anything but worship in the building, and I want an invitation. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, with your fundraising, I don't know exactly what fundraising programs you're running, but include me in that, and I promise you I will contribute to your building program because I love the direction it's going. Love it. Love it. It's time for us to have churches in our cities that rival the biggest and the best, that have 24-7 ministries and the facilities to house more than just a Sabbath service and a Wednesday night prayer meeting. It's time for us to start having the facilities that can step up to the vision we've been talking about, 24-7 ministries that impact more than just the mind but also the body, a place where we can develop holistically, and I see that in that building project. Forgive me if I can't run past that, but when I saw the plans, I got happy, got happy. Maybe it's because I'm crazy. Uh, Mr. President, you know, at our grand opening, we just purchased a building in Houston, Texas, that seats 3,800 people, 3,800 in the sanctuary. And I remember some of the members saying, that's too big. Just the way I think and the way I see things from a spiritual perspective, it's too small. And at the end of the day, amen, self, amen, talk to me, talk to me. It's too small, and God's people need to step up to the plate and stop being the tail and be the head. Be the head. I read in a book, I read in a book by Paul Scanlon that God hasn't changed. And I know in ancient Israel, the temple was one of the wonders of the world. People came just to see the facility. God hasn't changed. What changes are people, the way we think. It's the same God who has the same power, who deserves the same honor and the same praise. But sometimes we start thinking differently. Our houses have gotten bigger and our churches have gotten smaller would suggest the problem in priority. Same with the school. As it relates to Rama Junior Academy, we know that Rama needs to be the best and not try to make brick with no straw. God's people have straw. Bring the straw so that they can make all the bricks needed to build what is necessary for the kingdom of God. I can say things like that because I'm leaving. Matter of fact, when I finish preaching, I'm not going to have an opportunity to talk to very many people. Plane leaves at approximately 4 o'clock. Yeah, 4 o'clock. So I've got to make sure I get right to the point so that I can get to the plane. I must be home. My wife will be at the airport to receive me. And I do want to be received. So we praise God for the opportunity to preach. And we're going to do our very best to lift up a word. I saw Rowena Armster. You stood, Rowena, when did you graduate? What years? During... 57? Wow. Wow. I saw, I saw Rowena last week in California. She told me she wasn't going to miss this. She was going to be here for this event. 
And I told her I was going to be here too, and I thank God for the opportunity to be here. Are there any persons from Southeastern, Southeastern, who I've had the opportunity to spend time with in the family for that time? Do you still love me? I love you too, and it's good to see you guys as well. And the president of this conference and the officers and ministers who are here, all capable of preaching much better than I, individuals that I look up to. I thank God for your presence in here. I'm going to ask you to pray with me as I preach this message on today. Now, I want to address a question with the message that is going to be delivered today. It's a very simple question, but a very fundamental question, a question that we don't ask often enough. And that is, what does a real Christian look like? What does a real Christian look like? What does it mean to really be a Christian? Notice I did not say a Seventh-day Adventist. I did not say a Baptist. I said a Christian. What does a real Christian look like? This is a question that's important in any Christian undertaking, education included. This thing that we call church because at the end of the day, we've got to start with the end in mind. The things that we do have to develop and lead to the proper end. If we want to be a Christian, if we want our children to develop into great productive Christians, then we at some point have to stop and take a look at what a Christian really looks like. To see the vision of a real Christian requires that we look through uh, kind of the haze of religion because there's a lot that makes Christianity in its purest sense less than completely focused. We think that we see Christianity in a particular way, but I want to challenge your thinking on today, and I want to do it with the Word of God. The Word of God is the safest place on which to stand. I, too, have opinions, but my opinions have very little value. The Word of God has great value. It is a firm foundation upon which we can stand, and from that foundation today, I intend to paint a picture that is scripturally correct as to what a Christian really looks like. First of all, first of all, we need to be clear before we get into today's message that we are at the very end of time. So if you're planning to take a look at the answer to this question at some time in the future, that's a dangerous undertaking. I think that we are in the last days. Does anybody agree with me? If we are really in the last days, then we probably need to at some point take inventory and not ask, am I a good member of X church, but am I a good Christian from the way God measures Christianity? I've learned that when you are addicted to people approval, you become a schizophrenic in a spiritual sense. Depending on the setting you find yourself in, you will do what is necessary to adjust to the norms that are expected of you. And there's little value in that because one can't live a committed life when they think that way. Ten people have ten different expectations of me. And if I don't want to be dizzy trying to please people, at some point I've got to make the decision, who do I really want to please? If, in fact, I'm lining up and pleasing him, then I'm on firm foundation. Whether others assess where I am to be safe or not, I love standing in a place where God says, well done. That's why this question must be asked and the question must be answered. What does a real Christian look like? And at some point, we're going to have to take some steps to line up with what the Bible declares a real Christian looks like. Let me warn you at the very beginning that it might challenge where you currently are. And it might even challenge what you currently think. 
When I ask people what is a real Christian in the classroom or even in the workshops that I do, usually responses come back that indicate to me that they equate Christianity with the things that they do not do. They will say things like a Christian is a person who lives a clean and a moral life. They will then go on to explain all of the things that a Christian does not do. And usually they'll line those things up with the Ten Commandments, which means that there is some truth in it. They'll say a Christian is one who does not take God's name in vain, one who does not lie or steal or, or kill or commit adultery. And it's true that these are some of the characteristics of Christians, but I would suggest to you they are but symptoms of something else that happens with a real Christian. It does not make them a Christian. In fact, a person who is not committed to God can live that kind of life. Sometimes living a morally clean life brings great advantages, and there are people who will live clean just for the advantages, but they are unsaved. Usually we equate Christianity with all the things that are not done and all the stuff that is not worn and all of the places we do not go. And from a negative perspective, we try to describe Christianity and then call people into it like it's a wonderful place. First of all, all we've given them is a list of all you miss out on, all you lose out on, all you cannot do, the places you cannot go. And we do not stop to consider what the value is of being a real Christian. A person who's born out in the wilderness can live that kind of life, but it doesn't mean that they're really living life more abundantly. I would suggest to you that a Christian is not defined by all of the things that they do not do. There is another definition of what Christianity is all about. Let's go now to the scriptures. Wander back with me, if you will, some 2,000 years, and let's wander close to the window of the word and look in on a group of disciples who are there with Jesus. We're calling them disciples, and we're just calling him Jesus now, but his role really is a rabbi, and they are his students. It is a school. It's a school, and the teacher is teaching his best stuff. I consider this to be one of the defining moments of Jesus found in the 13th chapter of John. Some people say the defining moment of our Lord is when he rose up in a boat that was on a, a rough, wavy sea, and he looked at the winds and waves and said, Peace, be still, demonstrating the creative power of the same one who made heaven and earth with just the power of his word. I would suggest to you that's a mighty nice scene, but that's not a defining scene of who he really was. Some say that maybe when he wandered up uh, to the grave of Lazarus, a man who had been dead for four days, and the man was stinking, and he looked into the darkness of the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he began to levitate his way out, wrapped in grave clothes, and he resurrected him from the dead with just a word. Some say that's his defining moment, but it wasn't. Some say that when he took the five loaves and the few fish and he prayed over it and he blessed it and, and he broke it up and enough people could eat it all and there was enough for uh, take out baskets, that that was a defining moment. But I would suggest, as awesome as that is, that's not a defining moment. If those were his defining moments, then you and I would have problems because we certainly can't do that. We can't imitate that. We can't accomplish that. If that's what being a Christian is, following Christ in those ways, then I would suggest to you we've got a problem. 
In school, we cannot be taught to make five loaves and a few fish into a meal for 5,000. In school, we cannot be taught how to resurrect the dead. In church, we cannot be taught how to speak to nature and nature obeys us. That can't be what a Christian is defined as either. Not the mighty, miraculous act. No, that's not what makes a Christian a Christian. In fact, in the Bible, we discover that at the end of time, false prophets will arise and they will work great miracles and those miracles would even deceive the very elect. That's not what a Christian is. You do not prove your Christianity by singing well. You don't prove it by preaching well. You don't prove it by any of the miraculous things you do or the mighty works that you are engaged in. There must be something else that defines what a real Christian is. I suggest to you this defining moment speaks to us as the master begins to work his way up Calvary to the cross where we see the ultimate act in all of time take place. But it starts in a room. We're standing now at the window and let's see what the word of God says about what takes place in that room prior to the crucifixion of our Lord. The 13th chapter of John puts it this way, beginning with verse 1, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, by the time of supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from the supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will. You will never wash my feet ever, uh, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, you are not all clean. Verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put his robe, put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher, rabbi, and Lord. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord, your rabbi, and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. A Christian is one who follows the master. A Christian is one who is totally submitted to the master. Look in this room and I told you that what you see isn't just Jesus and some guys. This is a rabbi and the Talmudid. Talmudid is the word, the Hebrew word for students, and it comes from a system of education that goes back to Bible times. 
A child would go to school at age four or five and begin to learn things that would fit them for the battles of life. As they got older, about high school age, if they showed special promise, it was their right to make a request to be a student of a rabbi. These students, the Talmudid, were allowed to then go with a rabbi of renown. A rabbi was a sage, a wise man who would not only teach in the temple, the synagogue, the school, but would roam around the mountainside. And those who were given the opportunity to travel with him were given that special title of Talmudid. And that special title that was given to them indicated that they had made a submission to the rabbi to learn everything he knew, to follow everything he did, to imitate his every way. It was not the transmission of data and facts to somebody who simply wanted knowledge, but to travel with the rabbi meant that you had made a decision to live your life just like he lived his. Rabbis were known for their special ways of teaching, including such techniques as parables. Jesus was a master parable teacher, but the rabbi always, after telling the story to ignite something in the mind and imagination of the student, would then sit them down and explain to them what the parable actually meant. In cases where the students were especially thick and they were not getting the interpretation or understanding what was being taught, the rabbi would then act out the truth of what was being said. And they were told, until you get it, just imitate it. Did you notice here in this scene that Jesus says, you don't get it now, but just do what you saw me do. Don't forget that when you signed up to follow me, you submitted your ways to my ways. You took your agenda and pushed it to the side. And to be the honored student of a rabbi meant that you now had to take your own perceptions, push them in the back, and follow what the rabbi declared. Now step into the room. Don't just stand at the window. Matter of fact, we're sitting there at the table with the master anyway. Think about it now. It is the feast of the Passover. There are prescribed religious rituals that any good person was supposed to engage in. There were behavioral norms that had been established over time. And part of it was a special meal was to be engaged in on that Thursday night. They gathered and had all of the necessary preparations to go through the religious ritual like they had been trained to do. The disciples, the students now, are in the presence of the teacher. Listen to their discussion. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Oh, they're not worried about the ritual. They could do that with their eyes closed. Oh, they know what to say in Sabbath school, when to talk up, when to be quiet. They know when to stand in church. They know when to smile. They know when to clap. They know all of the religious words. They can do that with no problem. But they're in the midst of Jesus in his last scenes, and they are not paying attention to him. They're paying attention to what they can get out of it. 
The inspired pen says that at church, in the midst of the ritual, they're arguing about who would be the greatest. Judas presses his way up on the left side of the master. John presses in close on the right side of the master. The disciples are looking at each other with jealousy. They're looking at John, and John's looking back at them like this. And they're wondering, does Jesus love John more than us? And how can we get closer to Jesus? Remember now, these are a bunch of men who are all thinking about what they can get out of it. Their view of religion is that if I engage in it right, I get something. Don't fault them because we're the same way. We feel like if we really want God to give us something, then we're going to go and do a little extra. We're not going to eat all that stuff we can't wait to eat as soon as the fast is over. To convince them of how serious we are. If I put this in, God, you better give me tenfold out. And to engage in the ritual of Passover was an expectation for any good Jew. Being in the room gave them no credit. They were in the room because they get credit being in there. But that was not what it was all about. Remember, the Passover was all about Jesus. But they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And while they're going at it with nervous Judas, who was percolating a poisonous deal for prosperity, pressing close to Jesus, for what? You're about to go out and sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus' attention is somewhere else. What's Jesus thinking about? Remember now, y'all, this is Thursday night. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. His end was there. Was he thinking about how it was going to go down? Was, was he thinking about if there was another? What was he thinking about? Was he angry at the disciples because he knew that their hearts were right and their minds were unfocused? Was he trying to make sure that they went about the ritual in the exact way it was prescribed? Where was his attention? We quickly find out what Jesus was thinking about. The Jesus who is on his way to Calvary to die for humanity. The Jesus who was in the midst of guys who he had trained for three and a half years who did not get it. Jesus, we know what he was thinking because while they're talking, the record is he rose up. The rabbi stood on his feet. Walk with me. Watch the scene unfold. The rabbi takes off his outer garments leaving on only the necessary attire to hide his extremities he's looking like a slave now oh that's how slaves dressed he then walks over and he he takes a towel and he wraps it around himself and and he grabs a basin see he's been looking the entire time he was in the room to see if he could find what was necessary to meet necessary needs and he he grabs the basin and he begins to pour water you can hear a pin drop as the water is trickling into the pan drop by drop what's Jesus about to do I imagine one of the disciples said, surely surely he's going to go over to the one of us he considers to be the least and give us that pan of water and make us wash feet. After all, it was a common courtesy when you entered someone's house that, that the lowest among them would wash the feet of those who had entered. Think about it now. We wash feet, don't we, with communion? 
but we clip our toenails when we know it's scheduled. We make sure that we've got clean socks and stockings with no holes. We wear our best pair of shoes and make sure they're polished. And washing feet for us is a pretty little dainty exercise. But in those days when you walked around with open-toed sandals on the dusty streets of Palestine. Oh, and don't, don't, don't just expect that dust would be on someone's feet. Consider that this is an agrarian society and there are flocks of sheep and there are herds of wild animals who are walking those same roads. As they drop their smelly excrement and then, then chariots and carts begin to roll up and down those roads beneath the dust on the outer layer would be excrement that smelled and left your feet less than sanitized. Oh, this is a way that disease can be spread. This is a way to cause embarrassment to someone who had that smell emanating from their lower extremities. Certainly, to get your feet washed was something that represented a need. Not a want. Not a desire. A need. But these men who are in the presence of Jesus, in the midst of the service, Pressing close for benefit. We're oblivious not just to the needs of others, but to their own needs. So Jesus rises after pushing away from the table. Can't you just hear him saying these guys are so anxious to engage in a service they don't even understand? So that they can have that little box checked next to did communion. And our Lord taught a lesson that it takes most of us a lifetime to learn. As he stooped down and without asking, with no marketing campaign, with no questionnaire or survey, began to wash their feet. Preacher, you would think that individuals who experience that kind of lesson from the rabbi would get it and would be touched to the extent that they would say, let me wash everybody's feet. But although Peter gave a little halfway, Lord, you, you shouldn't wash my feet. Uh, none of them said, Lord, would you hand me that basin and let me do it? going somewhere with this. So the master pushed away from the table, girded himself with a towel, and washed dirty feet. Why'd he do that? Because if there was one lesson the master taught and told us to imitate it, it is being conscious, conscious of needs that are in our environment and then using what we've got to meet that need. Jesus demonstrated it when he stepped past 
policies, protocols, theological understandings, doctrinal implications, and saw the needs of others. He would violate your Mishnah and my Mishnah. He would step across your rules and my rules because when he saw a human need, it was for that cause that he entered this world. So he touched things a rabbi ought not touch. He'd handle things a rabbi ought not handle. He would hang with people a good Jew would never hang with. Because if there was one lesson he wanted to teach. It was that you are not a Christian. Because you understand every Christian doctrine there is to know. You are not a Christian because you can recite every word in every verse of every chapter of every book in the Bible. You are not a Christian because all of the bad things you do not do don't have the nerve to do, don't have the courage to do. You are not a Christian because of how you look on the outside. You're not a Christian because of whose church books your name is on. You are not a Christian because you are productive. I would suggest to you that you are a Christian when you follow the footsteps of the master. He says, let me tell you who the greatest is. Not the one who does this Passover meal just right. But the one who push away from the table of tradition. Get ugly. Strip themselves of their religious clothes. Grab a towel and wash the closest dirty feet you can find. Coming down to the end now. That's what a Christian looks like. I have a friend who preaches a sermon and he talks about how the devil has atheistic faith. He's got full confidence that God is able. Knows what's true. Believes it. But he's unsaved. What do we try to do, preacher, when we're going to get somebody ready for glory? They want to turn around in their life. We want to take them to a classroom, sit them down, and just pump them full of knowledge. Then release them out into the world like they're ready to fight against the devil. Oh, yeah, word is necessary, and we've got to take time to study the word. Absolutely, but what I did not find Jesus doing is hanging out in the back rooms of synagogues, taking the next Bible class. Mm -mm. Jesus would participate in a Passover meal like any other good Jew. But if need arose in the midst of the meal, the meal would have to wait. Preacher, as I travel this country, and you travel a lot too, what I'm hearing from people, and I I condemn no church where I stand and preach. I know that this is a dynamic church where the Spirit of God is moving, it's operating. But a lot of churches I'm going to, people are saying church ain't working. And I'm tired of faking it. And I sit with ministers and I'm one of them who looks for the next thing that will draw people and keep them interested. 
We've tried just about every kind of music there is. We've danced, we've had plays, we've used drama, we've done it all. And at the end of the day, all of it gets old pretty quick. None of us preach good enough to keep the congregation saved, interested, and on fire. Before they come hear us preach on Sabbath, they've listened to 12 sermons during the week that have been registered already on YouTube as the best stuff out there. Been preached that till you're blue in the face. You've heard face. You've heard enough singing so that when you go to sleep, you hear music in the night when your eyes are closed and none of it is saving you. We go through the rituals of religion and we act touched and we sometimes feel like there was something that jumped on us and, and when we leave, it's gone. Truth be told, there's some who just aren't brave enough to walk away from this thing we call church so you keep on coming. But if you would tell the truth, it ain't working. We find new lowered standards to use to indicate that we're a vibrant church when in reality, we're not touching our communities. We're not impacting our cities. We're not lighting up the world and we're certainly not taking the battle to the gates of hell, making the devil scared. Something is wrong. It ain't working. These greater than works that are described in the day of Jesus, it's not happening right now. I read where he walked through villages and whole villages ended up being healed. Where he would get involved with people who didn't love him or know him. And when he finished meeting some needs, healing a disease and providing some food and and touching them right where they hurt, they were converted. I don't see it. We send our ushers up and down the aisles of our churches counting and when we move from 200 to 210, we celebrate like the church is growing. The worst thing about it is if we brought in visitors, told them look around, see the people here, listen to what they're saying. If you join, you'll be just like them. How persuasive is that? Forget if they wandered home to eat dinner after church. It could be a fly on the wall listening to everything that was said. But we're Christians. Let me strip something away and get out of your way. Part of our problem is we care more about being Seventh-day Adventist than being Christian. I'm sorry, Mr. President. If, if, if I can explain this right, I think that you may not hold it against me. In the days of Jesus, Jesus highly disregarded what was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah were a bunch of oral traditions and laws that had been made by man to keep humans from getting close to breaking the laws made by God. So those traditions or cultural elements became holy or unholy determinants for those who called themselves Jews. To get just cut to the chase, Jesus, when he walked this earth, violated almost every law in the Mishnah. 
by the way you violated them today, anybody with shoes on that you had to tie up because there were 39 laws regarding the Sabbath and there were sub-laws to all of those 39 laws. Two of those 39 laws were that you could not tie and the other, you could not untie anything on the Sabbath. You probably broke four laws right there because you also weren't supposed to make loops on the Sabbath. There were laws about how much milk you could swallow at one time on the Sabbath. You could not spit on the Sabbath because that would be considered irrigating. You could not drag a chair. You had to pick it up and move it because if you dragged it, that was considered plowing. And Jesus stepped into that culture and said, you're crazy. As a matter of fact, he said to those who were the caretakers of that crazy culture, you guys travel all over the globe to find a proselyte, a person who will join. And once they join, they're ten times a child of the devil than before they came in. You turn them into critics that are able to disqualify everybody from glory except them because they've so well embraced the cultural laws of Judaism. And Jesus, who instituted Judaism to be his caretakers of what is true, he walked out of the church and shut it down at the cross and started a brand new era. Before you become confident that we'll always be, know that God has a final transition that he's going to make. And we got to do some changes before he makes the transition. Preacher, in Revelation 1, I find that the seven uh, angels are in the right hand of Jesus. Seven angels are the seven messengers of the seven churches. I find that in the midst of the seven churches is Jesus himself. Those seven churches represent the Christian age. But I see that by Revelation, the third chapter, uh, he's not in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks anymore. I find him standing outside the heart of individual people knocking, saying, would you let me in? They didn't want me in there, so I want to get in with individuals who will let me in. And with the Adventist mission, it changes every year. There was a time when the last great apostasy was having a drum in the church. You don't remember that? There was a time when the last great apostasy was a wedding band. Let me just shake you up and let you know I don't wear it here because I know what you'll think. But when I get on the airplane, I'll have it on. Why? I don't even like jewelry. But you know what I learned? When I talked with somebody sitting on an airplane one time, asked me a little bit about myself, and when I told him I was married, he said, oh, you don't have on a wedding band. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I don't. Our church, you know, I, I just, I just, I just don't. You know what I look like? You do know why people who are married travel without a wedding band on, don't you? I said to myself, I'm not sure if I'm giving the right message. I worry about it in here because y'all aren't supposed to try to hit on me anyway. Inside of the church of the living God safe in here but there is an Adventist Mishnah that we become so comfortable with we're distanced from the law of God to the extent that we don't have time to help anybody we're busy being a good Adventist if I stop and help this man with his car 
flat tire. I know that lady's there with all those little children. I feel so sorry for her. Well, she's here when I get back from church. Jesus pushed away from the table, took off his respectable garb, and did what you do when somebody's got a problem. Church is not going to light up again. It's not going to ignite. Your experience will not live again. You're just going to have to find singers who can thrill you, preachers who can preach you into a happy, and then you're going to have to just bask in it for all of the 10 minutes it will last. But your vibrant Christian experience will not come alive until you start engaging in washing some feet like Jesus did. I know you're planning now to wash some clean feet. Some nice people who live just like you, where it won't be inconvenient, won't cost you anything. I'm talking about washing dirty feet that have more than dust on them. There, there were some churches who had died. Give me some music because I'm ready to start up again. There are some churches that had essentially died. Listen to these illustrations. They're absolutely true. One, they had a bunch of comfortable people who were very nice people. They loved each other, had occasional church squabbles, but all in all, the church was full each Sunday. They liked each other. They were known as a church that was very prosperous. Their numbers looked good. Their children hung around the church for quite some time. They had little programs for everybody who was a member. However, there was no burden for the lost, and they started getting on each other's nerves over time. Any army who doesn't have an enemy to fight, they turn on each other in the barracks. Their fights were never to the death. Every now and then they get a little animated and go at each other, display a little bit of passion. Preacher looked out in the audience and noticed that everybody was so comfortable with each other that when it was time to greet each other in the name of the Lord, and they would walk around from person to person, pew to pew. Uh, Everybody just left their purses right there, unafraid that anybody would bother them. They knew everybody there. And he said, I don't like that. The neighborhood we're in is a downtrodden neighborhood where there are a lot of people who you're somewhat afraid might snatch your purse. And, And to come into church like it is an oasis, a haven, certainly doesn't reflect the people in this neighborhood. We've got to change this. To do that, Mr. President, I know can sometimes cause a drop in the numbers temporarily, but sometimes it's the best thing to do to bring vibrant life. Do you not know that sometimes a plant needs a little fertilizer? A little smelly can sometimes lead to some good fruit, and sometimes we're just too pristine and pure. We don't have enough down there at the roots to keep us alive. And so he decided he would have a bus ministry, and he went over to the homeless district and began to bring people in who did not have food to eat. Spread them out in the congregation, and there's some people who left because they didn't like people like that around them. The pastor's bringing needy people around here, and there was a loss as people left. But over time, those who stayed had to change their culture. They had ministries now that didn't just direct information at the head, but actually tried to modify the way people live life. Church started getting real. And after it went down, it went up. They became known as the helping church. There's another church. 
That's a scary thing to do, isn't it? Helping church. There's another church. Get out your way. This church made a decision that what they would do is they would direct their attention to the red light district. This is a church in Georgia, for real. They decided that human trafficking is a very real problem, and there were those in the church who had actually experienced the results of that with family members. They knew that in their immediate surroundings, there was a problem with prostitution. Churches always like to talk about how Jesus wouldn't work with the prostitutes, but you better not bring one in here. Fifteen people got together, eight ladies and seven men began to pray about that thing. They decided, let's do something about it. And they got in a van. And they had an approach that they decided to take. First, they would pray inside of the van when they would drop into the red light district. They would inform the policemen that they were going to be in that area. The guys would stay in the van, keeping careful watch on the women as the eight women would get out. Each of them with a letter and a rose. They prayed for divine GPS. Lead us to the right ones. They would go at the prompting of God. They would first engage the prostitute in conversation. If she would somewhat comfortably talk, it was assumed the pimp may not be nearby watching. A flower would then be offered. I just want to give you this. If they accepted the flower, it was a sure sign that the pimp was nowhere around. They would then hand them the letter saying, I prayed about this and I believe God led me to you. I do not think you enjoy this lifestyle and you want to be free and you don't know how. We have a van that's right over there. We have a safe house. Your pimp does not have to know where you are. We will stay with you until you can get back on your feet. If you are afraid to stay in this city, we've got a a safe house outside of the city. In 2013, by July of 2013, 22 prostitutes had been delivered. That ain't the end of it. And five pimps. Because they didn't go knocking on doors waiting for somebody who's hungry, waiting to be fed. Glad you came. Final story. This is real religion. Tired of this other stuff. Sick of it. Been doing it as a professional for 34 years. Tired of it. I want the fresh move of God. I want the infilling of his spirit. I want the power that comes because I'm engaged in his work. Wonder if he even cares about half the stuff we talk about in meetings. These great innovative decisions that we make to rearrange the furniture on the deck of the Titanic. When there are people in the water drowning and we're scared to dive in. Oh, you'll see the power of God alive in your life when you start being about the work of God. And his work is not what happens in boardrooms all the time. Last story. Preacher, you heard my qualifiers. I know God's work happens in boardrooms too. But we're just too comfortable in the boardrooms. Last story. Church decided that they were sick of doing church. 
Someone came up with the idea we are in the midst of a community that has homeless people. We drive past them every day. Let's go on a Friday. Let's collect a large group of homeless people and bring them here to the church. And let's have a homeless spa day. Let's go and purchase some brand new clothes. Set them up in a room like it is a store. Let's bring in a masseuse. Let's bring in a hairdresser. Let's bring in a barber. Let's provide for them a shower. Let's lay out some nice mattresses and warm covers. At church. Let's pamper them. For a solid day. Let's let them sleep at the church that night after eating a nice warm meal. Let them get up and put on their brand new clothes. That they bought with the money we provided. And then let's honor them at church like they are our honored guests. That's religion. And our Lord who began the scene in the room, stripping off his own clothes, stooping down and washing dirty feet, like the most lowly man in the room, pushing away from the table of religion and respectability and meeting a need because he perceived a need. And even during a time when he himself could use a little solace and comfort as he was making his way to an untimely death in a very tragic way. Our Lord, while climbing towards Calvary, looked at the crying women and told them, don't weep. When he was stretched out on the cross and it was lifted high and he was dropped in the ground and his skin began to tear, he looked around and said, Father, forgive them. To a crying woman at his feet. He said, John, take care of my mama. What are you doing, Jesus? Shouldn't people be serving you? The son of man came not into this world to be served, but to serve. And those who would be great in the kingdom of heaven are those who, like the rabbi, will serve. And he looked at a thief. And he said, die in peace. You will be with me in paradise. Then he stopped helping just long enough to die. But you know what? His death even helped me. Because if he hadn't died, then I would have had to go to that cross. So from the time of his birth to the day of his death, He tried to teach us the lesson that to be a Christian means you've got to serve. I want to make a very simple appeal, and then I'm going to go. I hope I haven't disturbed or troubled you at all. I do not knock all of the wonderful cultural things that go along with Adventism. I'm one and will be till I die. I do understand that there are times when administrative details must be taken care of, when churches must meet and discuss stuff, when lessons need to be taught and information needs to be passed on. But I think we've been doing that for too long now. 
And I want us to push away from the table. Take off these respectable clothes. Turn the autopilot switch off. Bend low. And the closest dirty feet we see, wash them. Don't wait for the next GC program. Are there some dirty feet around here? Yeah. And is there something we could do? Yeah. Washing feet is real Christianity. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I have a lot of personal stories I can tell, but I will just let you know that problems begin to fade into insignificance. Personal issues begin to shrink when we engage in the work that God called us to do.